We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is David Hunter, contrarian macro strategist with 49 years experience in the markets. How are you today, David? I'm good, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back. And, you know, it's been a little while since we've spoken. Surprisingly, it's it's been almost a year. So why don't we start with a bit of a recap of how you see the markets having reacted to the events over this past year? You know, we've we've seen global conflict continue, big time rate hikes, and then the effects from the economy come into consideration. So why don't you give us a little bit of how that has played out from your eyes? Sure. Yeah, I came into 2022 expecting a correction, but not the bear market we got. You know, Ukraine changed a lot, I think. So um, So it took a little while. I stayed, you know, I basically said, you're, you know, once you get through this correction, you're going to, you're going to have a big, um, upside, you know, another leg, another bull leg, and it took a while to get there. But actually, we we bottomed in June and retested in October. Although the retest was, you know, a bit lower, um, and it's hard for people to understand that because it felt like all of 2022 was down. But you know, underneath the surface, if you looked at the market, you were in the process of consolidating uh, and then bottoming. Um, you know into the fall. And we bottomed October 19th um, on that Fed meeting where it dropped down below 3,500, the SP dropped below 3,500 and reversed quickly. And I think we've been in a new bull leg since then. So the bear market really ended October 19th. Um, and, and of course, we've been up and then back down some. Um, and it throws a lot of people off because it just seems like we're still stuck in and neutral to negative, and most of the street is bearish. But I, I think, um, as I said, a bull leg started back in October, and I think with what's going on this last couple of weeks, we're very near to a big turn in the market. Um, and same thing with bonds. Bonds obviously had the Fed tightening last year, and it pushed rates up um, far higher than most people expected, including me. Um, but that has reversed now as well. Uh, and I'm not talking about Fed funds, but on the bond market itself, I think that 435 on the 10 year, uh, 434, uh, 35 was was the high in rates for this cycle. Um, and same thing with 30 year. And although they could back up here short term, you know, they gap down with the news on the banks. Um, I do think we're not going to get back to those highs. And we're beginning a new, um, you know, rate cycle that will move rates down. I think ultimately uh, to zero on the ten-year, so and probably below zero if we get what I'm expecting. So, so I know most people out there look and say the bond market's done. Um, you know that we we're never going back to those lows of March 2020, you know, the 0.40 on ten-year. But I actually think we will undercut that and actually see negative rates because of a global bust. Uh, and then that will be the end of the rate, you know, the secular rate cycle. And we'll have, you know, much higher rates going forward from there. But um, so right now I'm bullish. Um, I think, I think we, um, 
we are dealing still with the fallout from a Fed that over-tightened um, and, and grossly over-tightened. Um, and there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, trouble ahead, I think, in, in not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy um, because of that. But the good news, I think, right now, because of the strains in the banking system, the Fed, whether they wanted to or not, is going to have to pause. So maybe before we get to talking all about the Fed, because you know there, it does seem like this. There's so many of these these situations going forward that are so dependent on the Fed. Before we get into talking about that, you know, you've been calling for this epic melt up rally, really since you and I first started speaking. So why do you see it playing out now, and where is the liquidity going to come from to fuel this rally, David? Sure. As I like to say, we actually had a melt-up in in uh, 2020, 2021. Uh, you know, the, the market more than doubled from March 2020 to December 21. Um, so it, it confuses people because I'm still using the term melt-up. You know, I, it, I thought we'd have one melt-up, but it looks like we're going to have a second one. And I go, if it makes it easier, call this one the blow off and the other one the melt up. But um, basically we had a melt up. So it's not like we're still waiting for the call I made back in March, 2020. Um, you know, the, that we were going to see 4,000 plus and I raised that to 4,800, raised that to uh, 5,300 and ultimately 6,000. So I still have the same target, but we had the melt up. Then we had uh, the consolidation or bear market in 2022. Uh, and I think we are now starting a new bull leg my whole view is that we are at the very end of a 40 and what will be close to a 41 year secular bull market that started in August of 1982. That was really the beginning of the decline in inflation from the, you know, the high double digits in the early eighties, uh, the decline in interest rates, uh, 10 year got up to, and the 30 year got up to 15%. And it's been downhill ever since. So I think we're at the very end of that secular bull market uh, in both bonds and stocks. And this is that last hurrah. When you get into the last stage of a, a market like that, a long, long market like that, it can go parabolic. So that's really where the melt-up comes from, the melt-up term or the blow-off term, is that I think that this will end in one final, you know, um, parabolic run-up. So we did have a parabolic um in 2020 and 2021 but this one's even going to be faster and steeper uh if you figure the bottom was october of 2022 for this bull leg um i expect the leg to be over this year probably by the end of the summer maybe before that as i say when you get into that final vertical move the s&p could cover a thousand or even two thousand points in a matter of a month I mean, so it's hard for people to see because they expect it to kind of follow the same slope it always does. But that final blow off, I think, is is going to be very fast. So should we be making the distinction here of your analysis of a cyclical nature rather than a timed market call? Um, I don't know. It's, it's certainly cyclical, um, but it's also secular. Um, but it is it is not timing. I mean, that's why I keep saying it's it's different from a trading call because it's not that you know I might say that it's, you know it could happen as fast as the next three to six months, 
people hear that and they go, you said it was going to happen in three to six months. No, I'm just trying to make the point that it can cover a lot of ground when it gets into that final move. But the problem is you can have, as we had last year, consolidations that just stretch that all out. So, you know, I've said three to six months, probably three times, and it keeps going further. But it's it's the consolidations that you can't uh, time because those can last for months. They can last for, you know, a year. Um, and that's pushed everything out. But, yes, uh, I probably get myself in trouble because I do try to say it can happen this quickly once we get started. But it's it's had many false starts, and that just stretches everything out. Is this blow off top going to be concentrated in certain sectors, or will it be you know basically a broad overall push up of all the markets? Yeah, what I would say is the bull run that started in October of 2022. Um, let's say it's you know it's out there into the summer. It will be broad. It will be both growth and value. It will be both large cap and small cap. Um, I believe as we get into the melt-up phase, which is really probably after we make new highs, um, you know, you could see leadership narrow. It's going to leadership's going to drop off as you go along. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the final move is. You know, whether how narrow that's going to be, but I think generally this bull run, this last leg, is going to be fairly broad. So David, how does the Fed play into this? And what happens if they don't keep tightening monetary policy here? Yeah, I, I actually think they sh- they shouldn't keep tightening monetary policy. I think the the work they've done already is more than enough to take inflation down uh, below their targets. I actually keep saying deflation risk is far bigger than inflation risk at this point. The problem is they do not understand the leads and lags. And because they do not understand the leads and lags, they they claim to. I mean, they give plenty of lip service to um, the long and and uh, uncertain lag, but they really they still their their modus operandi is to focus on backward looking data, especially inflation. So they go, yes, we know inflation has its CPI has its flaws, and the housing component will come down because of the way they calculate it. We know all that, but we still are focused on what a CPI is now. And so, you know, what you got in this last two weeks is exactly the danger. If you're focused on something that may already be happening, but it won't show up in the data for, uh, you know, six months or nine months, um, you're still tightening when that data already, you know, you already took it down. And meanwhile, you're hurting the economy and the financial system pretty badly. So that's... um, I think that's the biggest problem is they don't understand leads and lags. Um, and so I do expect, I'm not expecting them to cut rates, certainly not today and maybe not for a while. Um, but I do think they're going to pause. You know, they may, I'd expect them to hike a quarter today, but it doesn't really matter whether they, you know, don't do anything or hike a quarter um, because the bond market's already telling you the the economy is um, slowing and slowing dramatically, and that inflation is coming down. So um, I pay more attention to the bond market than I do overnight rates that the Fed sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the other half of what the Fed does, which is liquidity. And again, it wasn't QE, 
but they are pumping liquidity back into the system. And that's a, that's a sign, I think, that the stock market's going to have to move the other way, you know, have to move up. So you see the liquidity that they're essentially providing to the markets to keep the banking sector from crashing, to keep that contagion from spreading. That's where the liquidity is going to come from to aid this blow off. Yeah, I think so. If you look at, if you go back, liquidity cycles are usually good signals for when you want to be looking for the market to turn around and head higher. And I think this is the tip of the iceberg. They can stabilize the regional banking system right now. um, And they may or may not have more problems to have to deal with in the next few weeks. But, um, but ultimately, there's a lot more problems coming because of their over tightening. You know, we we have just started to see office, you know, commercial real estate run into trouble, and that obviously is a huge balance sheet issue for the banks. Um, we are seeing delinquencies starting to rise on credit cards and and rise pretty fast. We're seeing, you know, in the the subprime auto is starting to run into real delinquency issues. So the banking system is, you know, what we had this time around or this past week was duration risk in in the you know the government portfolio or in the bond portfolio. Um, but that's only a piece of what the banks are going to be running into in the next year. So the Fed, I think the Fed understands, at least should understand that there's a lot of other risks lurking out there that haven't raised their ugly head yet. And so that's going to cause them to have to stay on the liquid side, on the easing side. Um, And whether they cut rates, you know, in June or July, I don't know. Ultimately, I I actually think if we get my scenario and we're at six or seven thousand on the S and P this summer, you can bet that Bill Dudley's comments and thesis about needing to to get the market down to tighten financial conditions, you know, Powell bought that hook, line, and sinker, and you saw that all last year. He spent, after every Fed meeting, if the market didn't respond to his hawkish comments, he brought every one of his members out there to talk very hawkishly, and it was all aimed at the stock market. No matter what anybody says, I hear people on, you know, talking heads say, oh, you know, on, on CMCC and places say, He's not focused on the stock market. Oh, he sure was, but in the negative way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tr- trying to make it clear there's no Fed put. Um, but more than that, actually targeting where he felt the market needed to go, at least at a minimum, I think he and Dudley had kind of targeted 3,000 or below. So he, I think he's given that up now. He realized he was kind of looking silly because it wasn't working anymore. As, you know, Mary Daly come out or, um, John Williams would come out or, you know, Bullock would come out and say, uh, you know, each one trying to be more hawkish than the last to try to get the market down and the market wasn't having it. So, so I think, um, it's not that he's really focused there right now, but I think if you get a market up, you can bet he's going to be back tightening. If, if, if the rest of the economy allows, it. if we're in a financial crisis by then, no, but I don't think you're up at six or 7,000. If we're in a financial crisis by then, I mean a bigger financial crisis. So, mm-hmm. so my guess is by the summer you might see that blow off in the market, 
and it'll give him the signal that hey, we eased too soon, or we're you know we're out of the woods, and we got to get this down, or else we're going to have an inflation problem bigger than we have. So you could have a second round of tightening, and it'll be happening at the same time that the banks are starting to see those other problems raise their ugly head. So you know he may ignore it because he feels he has to tighten, but I think it will all end up in a global bust as a result. So. You know what I think is a policy area error already in over tightening. If he comes back and does it again in response to the market, I think it will be you know that be the policy error of all policy errors. Mm-hmm. So you know you said earlier that you think he's done enough to get inflation down and possibly overdone it, or let's say the Fed in general. Why do you do you say that, David? You know it, it seems like that's that's the one thing that they've been squarely focused on, you know, alongside continuing strong, strong job growth, which, you know, their data seems to support. But, you know, is it is it just the lags that are still at play here in the inflation picture? Yeah, inflation tends to be a longer lag than even the economy. You know, economies and markets are tend to be six to nine month lags. To when you have impact mm-hmm. from policy, um, sometimes stretches out to a year. Inflation tends to be a longer lag where it, it's stickier coming down, but when it comes down, it comes down in pretty big chunks. My my whole thesis of deflation is uh, ties in with my expectation that because of the massive leverage in the system, a what would be a you know, recession or a you know fairly ordinary recession can turn into something far worse and something very historic. So when I say global bust, and I I will tell you, I was using the term, you know, seven or eight years ago, maybe longer, and nobody was using it. That term is because I used it over and over for many years, and people misuse the term or at least don't use it the way I do. When I say global bust. I define it as something bigger than a recession, um, maybe something that looks a lot like a depression, but happens at the speed of a recession. So it's rather than I'll use a Great Depression, which was a decade long, it'll be that kind of damage done to the financial system, but in a matter of a year. Mm-hmm. So it's something we have not had. We we almost had it in 2008-9. You know, when the commercial paper market froze up, if the Fed had zigged instead of zagged, if they had done something different than they did, we could have easily seen a free-falling financial system, and it came close. I think we see that. So that's what I mean by a bust. It will be something uh, that we almost got in 2008, but it was stopped before it got going. I think Bernanke's going to not be able to stop this one. And part of it is we've got three hundred trillion in in debt across the globe now, probably twice what we had then, maybe more. Um, we've got you know Fed balance sheet, central bank balance sheets through the roof. Uh, we've got derivatives to the tune of quadrillions in notional value. That all is leverage that is beyond anything history has ever seen before, and it hasn't been tested yet. In a in a bad economic environment, where and a financial crisis, so I think it just leverage exacerbates what would already have happened anyway. So as a result of that, 
um, I think you get deflation, you know, because the economy is going to be the worst in the post-World War II era um, and the financial system possibly going to be in the worst crisis in history. So, you know, if the Fed is still, if, if they still have this number of, of CPI that is, you know, above their 2% target, can they keep injecting liquidity while raising rates? And what effect does that have on the system? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, probably the biggest problem they face is, that's why I think this summer you could see him raising rates into what should be a time when he should be easing. I, I let's say, let's say, and, you know, again, it may not happen this way, but let's say he pauses uh, at this meeting. So whether they hike or not, you know, from here going forward, they pause and they announce that they're going to pause. Um, and let's say three, four, five months from now, the market's at 6,000 plus. And let's say inflation has come down some because you get the benefit of housing, you get the lagged effects, some of the things starting to kick in. But you're also seeing because of this big run up in the market and bounce in the economy because rates are down, housing you know, bounced, autos bounced. It looks like we're not going into recession now. It looks like the economy is recovering. And he reacts to that. He says, gee, inflation is still high. You know, it may be down some from March, but it's high. Um, that's the problem is these things don't all happen like clockwork. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to be in a tough place. And I, I it's funny because I've been one of his biggest critics over the last few years. But when people really start slamming him like he's an idiot, I, I defend him and I go, you sit in that seat. You have no idea what he's having to wrestle with. You know, the, as you know, I mean, people see things through a simple prism. And they're judging from the you know the rhetoric that's out there from everybody. It's you know he's got a lot of things to have to wrestle with and try to you know find that fine line that he can walk. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that I think he's you know oblivious to all these things. He's trying to balance the risks and and what he has to do. Um, and I think this summer it's going to be even a tougher time because the market's going to be way up. I mean if if you have a I mean, this could be maybe the biggest rally in history. Certainly, if you if you have a fifty percent plus move in the stock market in less than six months, um, of course he's going to look at that and say, you know, risks are through the you know people are taking on risk at levels they shouldn't be, um, and you know, let's say commodities have bounced and housing has bounced, et cetera, um, and the economy still is in positive territory. I think he's going to feel. He has to tighten. So I get I get the place he's going to be in. I just think it's going to, you know, just on the other side of what he's seeing is a disaster. <laughs> it's just you can't necessarily um, ignore the inflation and the seemingly overheated market. Mm-hmm. I think another, let's say, factor that they're having to fight and, and you know, really walk that tightrope is the political situation. You know, they're, they're supposed to be apolitical, but how do they stay out of this political realm, especially, you know, going into an election year next year? Yeah, it's tough. I, and that's where I have defended him. I really think he's done a good job of saying from both sides, you know, you see it in the, in the congressional meetings, both sides want him to 
you know, advocate for their side. You know, either the Democrats want to advocate for the need for, you know, fighting climate change and the need for um, helping the poor, et cetera. And he, he, you know, gives some uh, comments in that direction, but but he he understands he's got, you know, other issues that offset that. And the Republicans obviously want him to step up and say, Democrats are being fiscally irresponsible and that, you know, this this last big debt package was ridiculous or, you know, spending package was wrong. And he stays away from that and says, look, I'm I'm trying to do my job and stay out of the politics. This last, you know, I think last week it was reported that, um, you know, the Biden administration was wanting him to come out uh, and I think support climate change and things. And and talk about it in relation to policy, and he he stayed away from that. So, um, or no, I guess it was the blaming of the Republicans for the regional banking crisis. You know, saying, you know, can you step up and talk about? It? And he refused to. He said, "That's your job, you guys. You can fight that out." But so I really think he is impossible to be apolitical in his role. But I think he tries very hard. I, I, I have, I have, like I said, I'm very critical of him for some of the policy, but I think he's a stand-up guy that is trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So David, let's let's kind of drill into what the market reaction has been, let's say, since the banking crisis started. You know, one would think that people would run to dollars for safety as, as we've seen in the past, right? But why do you think the dollar hasn't gotten a bid as one would think that reaction would be? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm very bearish the dollar. I think we're heading for probably 80 on the dollar from, you know, we're at 103 now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're heading for 80. You know, the, the big story is the big run-up in the dollar last year. I mean, that's what, you know, caused my my scenario to get postponed, both in the market and the metals. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, um, I think, is being reversed here. The, you know, we can talk about the U.S. in isolation, but whatever our problems are, you know, Europe's an even bigger, you know, and, and their central banks are kind of between an even harder rock and a hard, uh, you know, a bigger rock and a hard place mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they've got the energy problem on top of everything else, um, but they've got inflation running away. UK today came out, looks like inflation's not coming, you know, s- staying high. <laughs> Um, and and if anything going up again, so so I I think um, it's always relative. The dollar is relative to other currencies, and I think right now um, two things: one, what's going on, um, you know, inflation wise around the world, and us relative to that, and also I think people are looking at you know around the world. Investors are looking at. Our country's got a lot of problems politically and, and you know, militarily we're getting, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves in a place where, you know, we're being, we're being uh, gamed, I think, around, you know, this whole thing with Russia and China. So I think people are becoming a little less sure of the U.S. going forward or and the, and the mighty dollar as being that place they can feel safe and secure because, We've, our policies are just, you know, particularly, and I hate to be so political, but particularly in the Biden administration, 
I think are hurting us pretty big time. I mean, you look at the southern border, you look at the amount of money we're pouring into Ukraine and the amount we're starving our own military. You know, we're, our military is a shadow of what it was because we we aren't really supporting it. So I and and then, you know, the whole thing with the Fed and what they're doing. I, I just I just think people have and are believing the narrative out there that the dollar is losing its status. Uh, you know, reserve currency status is going to start disappearing because on the world stage, China's beating us at every place. You know, China's getting into the Middle East now and looking like a peacekeeper over there. Um, you know, China's getting in bed with Russia, not that they weren't already, but I think they're going to play that up big. You know, the U.S. is looking vulnerable in Taiwan or, you know, with its ally in Taiwan. It's just a lot of places where you look and you go, you know, China, China's taken leadership and the U.S. is seemingly faltering. And, you know, I, I think that is going to hurt the dollar in the next year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, David, there's there's so many tangents to, to go on from there. But how do you think, let's say, the the ECB or the Bank of Japan pivoting here, how does that affect our markets? And does that, you know, create a situation where there's a, a flight of liquidity or capital from these other markets into something that does seem a little bit stronger, a little bit more attractive in the US? Is that a situation that you see contributing to that blow off as well? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I'm very bullish, as I said before, about the bond market. So I do think you're going to see that still take place. I mean, I think ultimately when we get the global bust, I do think um, the dollar will go back up. It will ultimately be the place people will still run to, flee to for safety and then treasuries will too. And I think rates, although rates come back up to fill in some gaps here in the next week or two, uh, ultimately, I'm calling for two and a half on the 10-year within a few months. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, as I said, probably negative rates on the 10-year within you know the next year. So um, I, I do think you'll see um, treasuries hold up in that. Um, what's going on in Japan? I mean, Japan's an interesting case. I think they're going to be part of the story in the global bust. Uh, you know, not necessarily right now, but in the global bust, um, the this whole thing of keep you know propping up their market by trying to uh, manage their yield curve, you know, by holding their yield curve where it is. Ultimately, I mean, that's that's MMT, right? That's basically saying we can flood the system and there's never any consequence. They're going to have a problem, and and it's going to come back to haunt them probably bigger than anywhere else in the world so except maybe china but but um i uh, you know in the near term i think they can still pull it off um i think the pivot there is probably you know in other words part of the bust is going to be that their their rates do break out and they can't manage it anymore um that will be part of their problem because they they can't afford you know their their rates are so low and they've held them down for so long by printing money and by buying bonds, you know, monetizing the debt, that when it breaks out, it's the same story here, but it's going to be far more painful there because they can't they can't handle even a one percent increase in rates. I mean, you know, when it goes one, two, three, 
Um, it's a big time problem. And it's a precursor of what's going to happen here because um, I don't want to jump ahead, but after the bust, because of the response to the bust, which will be massive money everywhere, I mean, times 10 to anything we've seen previously, um, it will trigger a huge inflation cycle on the other side of the bus. Mm-hmm. How are we going to, how are we going to fund, how are we going to service debt if you have 15, 20% interest rates? You can't. So that it ends in a collapse at some point, but, but there's several years where you're going to have just an inflationary commodity cycle. Um, so I think there's a, you know, again, it's part of not only are we coming to the end of a 40, 40, 41 year secular bull market, we're coming, we're in the last decade of what I call a super cycle that started after the Great Depression. So I define a super cycle as the period between two depressions, the 1930s and what I think will be the 2030s. You know, global bust is not a depression, even though it'll feel like it. There'll be this massive response because in deflation, you can print all the money you want, right? Mm -hmm. And then the problem comes down the road. Come pretty fast down the road, like a few years, but you'll have you'll have twenty percent inflation rates, maybe twenty five percent inflation rates by the end of the decade. You'll have you know interest rates up in those you know fifteen twenty percent range, um, and it's impossible to maintain that for very long because the more money you print to try to play MMT or to try to service your debt with more debt, you know that that game gets very gets broken very fast. And all of a sudden, you can't go to the capital markets anymore. People go, we don't want your debt. We we don't trust, you know, you can't service your debt. And once once we lose access to the capital markets in our so- sovereign governments, um, that's the end. Game over. And I, and I am forecasting in 2030s, you know, the biggest collapse in the history of the world. I mean, it'll be the end of sovereign governments as we know them. I mean... I don't know what will fill the vacuum, but, you know, as I say, you could have 50, 75 percent unemployment rates with no welfare system, no unemployment system, no Social Security or Medicare or very little, you know, certainly not a solvent one. Um, I I don't know what comes out of that kind of a world. Yeah, I mean, as terrible as that sounds, it seems like the inevitable outcome of massive money printing of trying to catch up to this debt collapse and and as you said trying to service debt with more debt it unfortunately it i i tend to uh, i tend to agree with the the outcome that you're you're painting there but i, yeah, I that, go ahead let me just say uh, it's it's basically um defining a, a ponzi scheme right it's you can build a ponzi scheme up and it looks great on the way up but once it once it gets exposed, once it reaches its zenith, it un, it collapses unto itself very quickly. And that's I think we have a massive Ponzi scheme that's been building for 80, 90 years, and particularly for the last 20. Um, and that's part of it. And um and the other part of my forecast is, you know, kind of the principle behind it is the government, I'll talk about our government, but it's true of all government will do they will not if they have any wherewithal to postpone or or fix you know put off the disaster scenario they will right so if you have the ability to print more money they're not going to say 
Uh, we know that's inflationary down the road. We're not going to do that again. You know, they say it now. They say they want to, you know, never again go back to QE, the you know, and things like that. They'll go back to QE many times what they did in in 2020 and 21, and um, because that's what it'll take to stop a free falling system, and they'll be able to, again stop that free fall one more time. The time when it when the whole system collapses is when you no longer have, you know, deflation. When, when, you know, this time I can predict what I'm predicting because we'll have deflation. And so they can print because of the lags to when that will turn into inflation, they'll, they'll be focused on what's right ahead of them, which will be the free falling economy and financial system. Mm -hmm. So you will see, I think the Fed's balance sheet could grow to 30, 30 trillion. And and I think you'll see global debt grow to 450 trillion, maybe more. That'll all happen in a couple of years' time. I mean, that's what it'll take to stop a free-falling global financial system. Mm -hmm. And then imagine what you know with the lag, what that does. It gives you, I mean, that's why I predict 20,000 gold and 500 silver and you know copper at levels with you know times 10 of what we've seen, you know, but and oil at four or five hundred dollars a barrel. That's what that will beget, but it won't be here very long because it also begets interest rates at levels that can't, you know, we won't service debt. And once once that all happens, the collapse comes soon after. So, you know, I think we're in the last decade of a super cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it almost seems meaningless to measure any of those things in, in terms of dollars at that point. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically, it's, you know, as I say, parabolics go straight up. You can't pick the number. Mm -hmm. You know, I say six to seven thousand on the S and P as my range for the top. And somebody goes, "Well, could it go higher?" No, I said, "Sure." You know, parabolic it can do whatever. It'll be irrational, but it can do it. So, you know, David, I'd like to drill in a little bit more into the metals. You know, to contrast what we talked about about the reaction of the dollar since the banking crisis, we've seen a, a good move in especially gold, but you know, somewhat muted in silver as well. But, you know, it doesn't seem like this move was proportional to the amount the dollar went down. So is this possibly a recognition by the system of that security that the metals provide? Yeah, I think I think you, um, I, I just want to step back a little bit and go back to um, spring of 2022. And I was bullish metals they look like in the first couple of months of last year they look like they're ready to have that lift off and um and then we had the dollar and the dollar went straight up from 95 to 115 i mean a 20 point move in six months the the metals went straight down so metals bottomed in end of september early october they had that first run through january and then February hit them hard because they had gotten ahead of themselves. Everybody was all of a sudden bullish metals. And as you know, metals are, I think there's more of an emotional con, uh, content to metal investors than anywhere and, and, and miners. So, so they had a pretty good consolidation in February um, and then started to move again in this, you know, this most recent, um, as, as, as I say, the biggest, the, biggest thing holding back the metals for over the last year besides the dollar that's related is all this 
um, Fed talk and and understanding that you're you're in a tightening cycle. That's a headwind for metals like nothing else. And so, if we're about to remove that headwind uh, and go to at pause at least, and like I say, liquidity starting to come turn up, um, that's very bullish, I think. And you're, in my opinion, starting a huge move in the metals and miners. And yes, we corrected yesterday, and I think we could correct a little more this week. Um, but ultimately, I think we're at the very low end of both the metals and miners. You know, gold had a nice move here, so it's not quite as low. But but silver's still pretty low. Um, I'm still calling for three thousand gold before the bust. So this year, and um, sixty probably in silver, and it could be fifty, sixty. Um, and um, I, th I think we're at that point. So again, I'm not trying to call right here that it turns up because it can fill in some gaps here for another week. Um, but it sure looks to me like we're getting started. And uh, I, I, it doesn't always happen. In fact, it happens opposite many times. You know, there's a lot of people think because in some cycles we've seen it that. The metals have to go opposite the stock market, but I think we're on the verge because both will benefit from the end of a tightening cycle, um, or at least a temporary end to it. Both will respond in the same bullish way to that. So I think, and I think what we're going to see in both markets, because they've been down for a while, the you know stock market seemed like an eternity in the last year. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, but it seemed like it after after what we saw in 2020 and 21 um and for metals it has been a long time um both i think are thin markets you're gonna have a buying stampede i think in the stock market and i think you're gonna have a lot of buying in in, in the gold and silver market and i think you're gonna find out just how thin those markets are because everybody's on one been on one side of the, the boat for so long right so you know on the on the other side of that we've seen energy prices and specifically oil and gas get sold off fairly hard you know especially this week do you think that this is a, a reaction to seeing a major recession on the horizon right now you know considering the demand picture yeah i i took a lot of grief cuz i turned i was i didn't see the ukraine thing coming so i missed the move from 85 to 130, you know, it was a spike that lasted for two days or whatever. But um, but I've been basically from from that 120 area down saying oil's peaked. And as you know, back then, back last spring, the majority were calling for 150, 200. And everybody was saying oil's heading higher across the institutional investment community. Energy was at the top of the list of of sectors to own every every uh, portfolio manager marched out listed energy as their favorite sector from that point from probably um, late spring i've been bearish oil ever since and i i had a target um when when oil had this last bounce up to 90 um, i had a target of low 60s and i was the only one out there talking not only talking down but talking down to here and we're almost there um and it was because i you know both on the charts and also uh you know my bearish view on the economy i felt worldwide demand is a lot 
less than people expect. Mm-hmm. And even though the you know supply demand numbers coming out in various places, we're trying to say it was still tight. It just didn't make sense. You know, when you had the kind of price move you had, it certainly caused a change in in driving habits and and you know across the globe. Um, you know, the things that were going on in Europe, et cetera. It was pretty clear we had a we had a supply situation of way in excess of demand. And so I think in the short run, we're probably going to get to that low 60s. You know, we got down to the mid 60s. I think we can go a little lower. Um, and then I'd expect a bounce during the, what I call this melt-up phase in the market. So you could see oil back to, you know, low to mid 80s before heading lower and then in the global bust, which I think the bust probably starts before the end of this year. In the global bust, I expect oil to go down into the 30s. So um, I don't think we're done with the bear market in oil. Um, I do think oil is a huge um, winner in the next cycle once we get beyond the bust. But I think for this cycle it's done and if, you know, uh, there's a there's a long chart out there if you look at 20 year charts or you know something like that 25 year chart there's a head and shoulder in in XLE that would argue for twenty dollars and XLE is in the 70s so or yeah I think it's 75 mm-hmm. so I mean you know all the market I have a bear market scenario where the whole market goes down 80 percent so that's not much more it's basically the same thing as that but but I think again, the energy sector is not where I would um, consider things to do well in the next few months because I think it can it can rally with the market if we do get this bounce in oil, but it's not going to outperform. I think the big outperformances in other areas. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier, if we see in that next inflationary cycle, we could see five hundred dollar oil, but that's you know again in association with the very likely the, the crazy money printing that we're going to have to see to try and save this next bust, right? Yeah, the global bust will take oil down into the 30s. And then I think, and could go lower than that, but I think 30s. Um, and then I think, yeah, after after we start printing that money and the market starts turning around, I think oil goes from you know 30 to 500 in the course of five years. Uh, and you know you can imagine what that does to pocketbooks, and you know energy, energy has such an impact across the cost of goods sold across all industries. So, I mean it it's going to be a fast cycle. You know you're not going to have one of these twenty year recovery cycles because it it can't be sustained. Mm-hmm. Excellent, David. Well, should we you know maybe kind of go through a little bit of a a summary here before we wrap up of how you see this broad market really playing out here. Sure. Yeah, that's a good idea because it, it can sound very schizophrenic. I mean, it's, you know, up and down. And I just want people to understand the volatility I'm talking in these forecasts is because of where we are in the super cycle and where we are in the big cycle. It's not, you know, it's certainly not a personality thing where I, I just look for extremes to get attention but it's 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 really what happens that you know we've we've built excesses for a long time so um so just to, to kind of summarize i think 
Um, we are very close to a move in the stock market that will start out from here um, at you know four thousand ish, and probably run maybe to forty six hundred something like that in the next few weeks uh, or month. Pull back, might pull back, you know, ten percent, and then run to new highs. And once we get to the new highs, I think we'll see a, you know, it'll start really building because people will start abandoning the bear market rally scenario. You know, they can hold that all the way up until we've, you know, once you get new highs and it happens with volume, people are going to turn bullish. And I think it's from that 4,800 level that you'll start seeing that parabolic build. So let's say we're at 4,800 this late spring, um, you know, you could go another 2,000 points from there uh, in you know, a month or two, so so sometime this summer. Um, in terms of bond market, I'm looking for two and a half as the next move down uh, on the 10-year. And then from there, it might consolidate for a while. Um, and ultimately, it will take the global bust, I think, to drive it much lower. But... Um, I think you'll see it you know, go below two, then below one. And ultimately, I think in the middle of the bust, if they're printing $20 trillion just to save the system, the way you print is obviously buying bonds, buying treasuries. Um, you're going to see it go straight through zero. I think you're going to have negative rates. You're certainly going to have negative short rates. I think you're going to have a negative 10-year my forecast for the 30 years, it probably doesn't get below a quarter or a half, but it'll stay positive, but I, I don't know that. Um, in terms of metals, you know, I expect a move to 3,000 here this year in gold, um, 50, 60 in silver, and then um, a pretty good consolidation during the bust uh, before they move much higher. I'm calling for $20,000 gold by the end of the decade. And probably four or five hundred dollars silver. Uh, and again, those numbers are out there. I can't precisely know that's where they go. I'm I'm guessing typically, as extreme as this is, I'm guessing I'm going to be conservative that they'll exceed my levels just because of what we're heading into. And again, remember that this scenario I'm painting is a global scenario. Whatever the Fed's doing, the other central banks will be mirroring. So proportionally so the big money printing during the bust will be across the board you know including the people's bank of china um and you know every other central bank um and and, and what we're going to be running into in terms of an inflation problem by the end of the decade is going to be global you know it's not a u.s story this is really a you know a huge global story well, David, I appreciate you sharing your view with us and having the patience to explain it to us. <laughs> you know, again, here it's it's crazy to think about, but you know, I th think this possibility is worth considering, right? And unfortunately, there is a distinct possibility of this happening. Yeah, that's that part, and I I do realize it it can cause sleepless nights to think about this. And I tell people try. Try to focus on what's just ahead of us, mm -hmm. meaning first, you know, in the market, a, a blow off, but then a, a bust and prepare for that because that, those are historic in themselves. 
you know, people want to spend their time thinking about the collapse of the 23rd. I go, number one, it's a forecast. I could be wrong. And, you know, I'm I'm putting together a lot of stuff and this is my conviction is there, but but I could be wrong. And, you know, don't lose sleep over something that's seven, eight, ten years out mm-hmm. because there's a lot ahead of us. And and really, if you can focus short term and, and get your house in order, you're going to be a lot better off in terms of weathering the storm later on. So, you know, we got enough on our hands, I think, here in the next six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You do a quarterly letter by subscription, right? Um, yes, I do. I've got it's the Contrarian Value Advisor. Um, I've been writing it since uh, the year 2000, I guess. I did it for institutions for a long time, and it's now available for retail as well. Um, it's by subscription um, and comes you know, comes with a, a decent uh, cost. So, but if people are interested. Uh, it comes out quarterly. I write a quarterly letter purposely because my forecasts don't change that often. And frankly, it's a macro forecast. Those things don't change often. I think we live in a world that thinks day by day no news is how you make forecasts. It's not. Um, so it's quarterly letter. Um, and if people are interested in it, they can direct message me on Twitter and I'll provide details. And of course, that's uh, at David H. Contrarian on Twitter. Actually, at Dave H. Contrarian. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm there pretty much every day with comments and replies to people. I would just caution people. I know there's a lot of followers that only follow the tweets. And, you know, you've, you've got to also look at replies because I'm, I'm probably replying, you know, many tens of times a day, many dozens of times a day. Um, and I'll have people come in and say, I haven't seen you for months. And so just know if I, if I don't do an original tweet, tweet, you may not see it in your newsfeed. Um, but if you come to my, I don't know exactly how Twitter works in terms of setting that up, but if you come and look at t- replies, a lot of what I put out there in terms of my forecast comes through replies. Excellent. All right, David, well, I appreciate your time today and Look forward to hearing from you again. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Great to see you. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.